Well, it's uh, been a pleasure to be here. I so enjoyed yesterday uh, hearing the reports, very humbled uh, by the reports. And um, those of us who are younger, well, not much younger, but those of us that are younger, um, so uh, inspired by the example that was set uh, by those who have uh, served the Lord before. And I think last night was a very special meeting. And um, thank you for all who took part. Uh, would you turn your Bibles, please, to uh, Matthew chapter 6? Matthew chapter 6. And we'll read from verse 1. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 1. Be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by men. I tell you the truth that they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask him. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show men they are fasting. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil in your head and wash your face, so that it will not be obvious to men that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Amen. And we know God always blesses the, the reading of his own uh, inspired uh, word. We're cutting in uh, to the Sermon on the Mount, and we're turning to a section that Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones describes as the most uncomfortable and searching in the whole realm of Scripture. Um, the great theme of the Sermon on the Mount is the kingdom, and in verses uh, chapter 5, verses 1 to 12, our Lord describes the citizens of the kingdom. They're poor in spirit, they mourn, they're meek, they hunger and thirst after righteousness. They're merciful, they're pure in heart, they're peacemakers and often persecuted. And then the second half of chapter 5, he deals with the ethics of the kingdom. And he summarizes that section uh, in verse 20 by saying, Except your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, in chapter 6, our Lord deals with what we might call the piety of the kingdom. 
Now, the word piety is not a popular word today, probably because it's misunderstood as something gushy and insincere. But as we should see, that's the very antithesis of a true piety and godliness. Our Lord is dealing with, in these verses, um, things that we might call religious duties. Now, all duties are religious. They're done in the presence of God, and they ought to be done for the glory of God. And yet our Lord's concentrating on that narrow sphere of duties that are specifically religious, religious, giving, praying, and fasting. And in this section, as in previous sections, he says that his followers are to be different, different from the great body of the professing people of God, those he calls hypocrites in verse 5, and different from the popular Um, superstition of the religion, if you could call it that, of the man in the street, those he calls pagans in verse 7. Do not be like them. His followers are to be different. Different not so much in what they do, for like these others, his followers will give, they will pray, and they will fast. But our Lord's concentrating on the way we do these things, our motives, our goals, our attitudes, and these, he says, are to be utterly different. I want you to notice three things this morning. I want you to notice, first of all, the description of hypocritical piety. And then secondly, the mark of an authentic godly piety. And lastly, the the importance of a genuine true piety. So first of all, then the description of hypocritical piety. In the passage, Jesus selects the, the three chief personal duties of Judaism, giving, praying, and fasting. And he warns his followers, do not be like the hypocrites. Now, both in English and in Greek, the word hypocrite comes from the word actor. In English, it was used uh, of those medieval theater companies that moved around the south of England. They were small companies, and one actor would perform many parts. And in order to make the transition between one character and another, The actor would simply hold a porcelain mask on a stick to his face, and when he changed character, he would change the mask. And that's the hypocrite, someone who plays a part, someone who hides behind a mask. It's being something different on the outside than you are on the inside. A hypocrite is an actor. Now, what does an actor do? Well, an actor takes something that is unreal and he pretends that it's real and he seeks to present it to us in such a way that it seems real to us so that when we watch that play or that film we don't perceive its unreality we think this is actually happening then secondly an actor gives his performance in public he has an audience he wants an audience and it is the audience that he is seeking to impress and persuade and thirdly The actor is motivated by the desire for applause, the recognition of his peers, the nomination uh, uh, for an Oscar, the popular acclaim of the people. These, says Jesus, are the characteristics of hypocritical piety. It's unreal. It's performed in public. And it's done with the chief motivation of trying to impress others. And that's what our Lord's warning us against in these verses. Now, the structure of the passage is simple. Jesus announces his text in verse 1. Be careful not to do your acts of righteousness. That's better than the authorized version. 
uh, uh, do your alms, because he's not speaking about giving specifically in verse 1, just these general acts of piety. Be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. Um, uh, there is this general prohibition then on publicly, public displays of uh, piety. And then in the rest of the passage, our Lord gives three uh, funny and penetrating examples of such hypocritical piety in, pray, uh, in giving and praying and fasting. So in verses 2 to 4, he deals with giving. Look at verse 2. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by men. Here Jesus pictures the hypocrite announcing his giving with trumpets. Now these may have been literal trumpets that sounded from the temple when a special uh, need had arisen and the uh, Pharisee uh, can be seen uh, hurrying with his gift in hand towards the temple. His, the timing and the speed of his movement draws attention to what he is about to do. The, the reference to trumpets may have been metaphorical because at the entrance to the temple, 13 brass-shaped trumpet-like receptacles were mounted, which were replicated in most of the synagogues. And the um, Pharisee then can be seen coming in with his little pouch of shekels. Uh, he opens them in front of everybody else. He drops them in from a great height, so they rattle down the throat of the trumpet, drawing attention to himself. So he declares to everybody, I give tithes of all that I possess. Like a little child who's just got a new toy or acquired a new skill and excitedly turns to his parents and says, look at me, look at me. So the Pharisee, by his action and his demeanor, says, look at me, look at me. Then in verses uh, five to six, our Lord moves to that second great spiritual duty of prayer. And he says in verse five, and when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. In the synagogue, a man was often invited from the congregation to read the law and to lead the congregation in prayer. In Jerusalem, at uh, times of special feasts, and perhaps each afternoon as the afternoon sacrifice was about to be offered, trumpets would blow from the, uh, the temple and uh, men would drop to their knees, face, uh, turn towards the temple, much as Muslims turn towards Mecca today, and pray in the street. The word street there in verse 5 is not the same word that appears in verse 2. It's, verse 5 refers to a wide street, a major thoroughfare, a corner, an intersection where a crowd would likely gather. And these hypocrites deliberately placed themselves in those busy places so they could display their piety by concentrating on the words they were using, dropping in appropriate, appropriate cliches, which was accompanied by increasing um, tones of verver. They were thinking of the effect that their praying was producing on those who could see and hear them. They wanted to do well. They wanted to make an impression. They wanted to win men's approval. They were supposed to be coming to God in prayer, but they were putting on a performance for all who could see and hear them. Jesus says these hypocrites love to pray, 
But unfortunately, it wasn't prayer they loved, nor was it the God to whom they prayed they loved, but it was the platform that prayer provided that they loved in order that they might display themselves. And thirdly, Jesus speaks of fasting in verses 16 to 18. Verse 16, when you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show men they are fasting. The practice of fasting was given, and let me say is given, to the people of God for two primary reasons. First of all, it was used to express humiliation uh, for sin. It was um, a confession of repentance and brokenness before God. And secondly, when circumstances changed or were changing, it was used as an expression of dependence upon God. It was a cry uh, to him for help concerning the future. And so either overwhelmed by personal guilt or needing guidance for the future, the worshiper would abstain from food that he might stand in the presence of God undistracted. But these hypocrites had completely reversed the purpose of fasting. Instead of promoting humiliation, they used it to promote pride. Instead of an expression of dependence upon God, it became an expression of self-sufficiency. It was a means of self-display. You remember the boast of the Pharisee in Luke 18, I fast twice a week. The Pharisees had the practice of fasting on Mondays and Thursdays. And Mondays and Thursdays just happened to be the two major market days um, among the people of God where towns were crowded with farmers, merchants and shoppers uh, doing business. And these hypocrites were glad of the increased audience in order to parade their piety. They made their faces unrecognizable, perhaps uh, smearing them with ash to give some kind of holy pallor. And when somebody said to them they were looking a bit pale in the most pious of terms, they would say, well, you know, I'm fasting for the Lord today. All for the praise of men. Now, that was the the piety of the hypocrites. Now, all these activities were good activities. It was good to give, it was good to pray, and it was good to fast. Certainly, the consciences of the individuals involved would have approved of this behavior because they were acting in obedience to Scripture. The religious community would have approved of these activities because this was acceptable, godly behavior. And the recipients of the charity would have welcomed the sacrificial giving. These hypocrites could engage in each of these activities surrounded in a warm sea of commendation and praise. What possibly could be wrong with any of these things? How can you give wrongly? How can you pray wrongly? How can you fast wrongly? Now Jesus in these radical and shocking statements says that you can Because the great flaw in their piety was that it was totally man-centered and God was not in their thoughts. They didn't give for God, they didn't pray to God, and they certainly didn't fast before God. And it's that love of prominence and preeminence, that emphasis on self-glorification is the mark of the hypocrite. Um, In each of the three cases, Jesus speaks of men and the motivation that men bring. 
He says in verse 2, to be honored by men. He says in verse 5, to be seen by men. And in verse 16, to show men all for the praise of men. Now, we in our conservative evangelical circles um, are often criticized for being uh, too reserved. And to be sure, you know, we have many faults and many shortcomings. But one of the great virtues of our tradition is that I think in a large, to a large degree we have been protected from some of the cruder forms of this play acting. The, uh, the story is told of um, a charismatic man who was holidaying in Scotland and uh, he, in the highlands of Scotland and he went into a free church uh, for Sunday morning worship and um, it was very sober and uh, the elders came in um, from the, the front, they sat in front of the pulpit watching the congregation, just checking who was sleeping. I'm having a look now. And, uh, and, uh, and they sat, and then the minister came in, of course dressed in black, and the beadle then locked him into the pulpit, symbolically locking him up to the word of God. And then they had four unaccompanied psalms, and this, uh, this charismatic was sighing heavily. And then the minister began to preach. And the minister lifted him up to the very gates of heaven and the glories of Christ. And in the middle of the service, this, this charismatic shouts out, Praise the Lord! And somebody taps him on the shoulder and says, We don't praise the Lord in here. <laughs> oh, well, that's true of us, isn't it? You know, and that's not a bad thing. We are suspicious of show and blarney and fulsome compliments. We try to avoid anything that parades the ego of an individual. Uh, we don't like entertainment. We don't like uh, personalities dominating our services. We want all the glory to go to God. And yet we, we need to realize that there is a very present danger and is all of a piety that is man-centered rather than God-centered. The preacher who is thinking of the impression that he's making on his congregation and waiting for their words of appreciation and praise rather than the thinking of the verdict of the master. A person who engages in public prayer. How difficult it is not to want to impress. The missionary who... Um, slightly exaggerates the successes of their service in order to make an impression and gain supporters. One of the most moving experiences I had was when I first arrived in Bangor. I was asked to chair the Worldwide Missionary Convention that first year. And Helen Rosevere was one of the speakers. And um, so in the pre um, prayer meeting uh, before the service there was the chairman there was myself and there was he Helen Rosevere and Helen Rosevere prayed like this she said Lord deliver me from exaggerating the facts in order to make an impression I was really moved by that because she had a story to tell The person who stands and sings praise 
And five minutes later, you ask them what they sang, and they can't even remember. It was so mechanical, so external, that it made no impression on the memory whatsoever. Can you name the two songs that we sang this morning? Can you? Our duties are so often mechanical and routine, no more than a performance with no sense of God in them. And since as leaders among the people of God, we have the opportunity to display our piety more than most, this is a temptation to which we must guard our hearts. The goal of pleasing God is replaced with the goal of pleasing men. Now, Jesus says of such piety, they have their reward. Those who give, verse 2. Those who pray, verse 5. And those who fast, verse 16. They have their reward. Now, that phrase, have their reward, is actually borrowed from the commercial world. And it was uh, when you entered into a higher purchase agreement and you made your final payment, this was the, the word, the phrase, that was written on your receipt, paid in full. There is nothing more to come. And Christ says, when you've received your little bit of appreciation and praise, the clapping of hands, the commendation of men, that's it over. God has nothing more to give. God has nothing more to say. Your piety is worthless in his sight. You wanted the applause of men. That's exactly what you get. He gave them the desires of their heart, and he sent leanness to their souls. You know, in that, um, the Pharisee and the tax collector going up to the temple to pray, there's a little phrase in that that I think none of our English versions capture the way they should. We're told that the Pharisee stood up and prayed to himself, literally to himself. It went no further than himself. God didn't hear it. God didn't regard it. His prayers began and ended with himself. The description of hypocritical piety. The second thing I want you to notice is the mark of an authentic godly piety. Like these hypocrites, the true disciple will also give, he will also pray, and he will also fast. Jesus doesn't say, if you pray, if you fast, if you, sorry, if you give, if you pray, and if you fast. But when you give, when you pray, and when you fast. These are religious activities that the Christian, the true disciple, the citizen of the kingdom will regularly engage in giving, praying, and fasting. But it's different than that of the hypocrite in that it's not man-centered, but God-centered. Remember, Jesus announces his text in verse 1 before he gives the three illustrations. Be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So if the hypocrite does his acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them, the opposite then must be true of the true child of God, that he does his acts of righteousness in private to be hid from men. And that's demonstrated in the three examples that our Lord gives. In verses 4, 6, and 18, you have this repeated phrase, in secret. Verse 4, so that your giving may be in secret. Verse 6, But when you pray, go into your room and close the door and pray to your father who is unseen. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Verse 18. So that it will not be obvious to men that you are fasting, but only to your father who is unseen. And your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. 
in secret, in secret, in secret. Someone has said the secret of religion is religion in secret. And that's what our Lord's saying here, in secret. Resist the temptation to display, to drop the casual hint, to put on a performance. We know the many subtle ways in which we can do this. How devious and deceitful our hearts can be. Even the humble posture that we adopt can be a means of self-promotion. Stories told of a Hindu holy man who used to cover himself in ashes and sit at the uh, corner of a street in his city in order to um, show his humility and his brokenness. And when tourists asked to take his picture, the mystic would rearrange the ashes to give the best impression of destitution and humility. And a great deal of professed humility in evangelicalism is simply a rearranging of the ashes. Even in prayer, how difficult it is not to want to impress. Uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones tells the story of um, a very well-known and respected preacher who was leaving the uh, pre-church prayer meeting to move into the vestry, and he had to pass through a corridor um, which was... Um, full of people arriving and, and coming to church. And as he was moving from the pre-church prayer meeting into the vestry in the corridor, he fell to his knees spontaneously to pray and to cry to God for help. Well, Lloyd-Jones asked the question. He says, why didn't he wait till he got into the vestry? Even when we pray, we're scrambling for words and expressions that will please our fellow worshippers rather than pouring our heart out to God. How it's possible for Satan to grab us by the throat at the highest moment of, of religious devotion. And we're praying and then suddenly the thought comes to us, this sounds good. I'm doing well. I'm very fluent tonight. Jesus says the answer is to be alone. Just ourselves and God when there can be no phoniness, no pretending, no promoting of self. To paraphrase Margaret Thatcher, when she denied terrorists the opportunity to defend themselves on television, she says we need to starve them of the oxygen of publicity. Well, we need to starve our eagles of the oxygen of publicity. That's the mark of the true disciple. The Christian, when he gives, he doesn't let his left hand know what his right hand is doing. Verse 3, his giving is quiet and private. There are no trumpets blowing. He doesn't blow his own trumpet, but he secretly gives to the Lord. The fewer that know, the better. Not because he's ashamed of his offering, but because he doesn't want to draw attention to himself. Calvin says he means that we ought to be satisfied with having God as our only witness. Satisfied with having God as our only witness. Are you satisfied with that? Spurgeon says it's the mark of the hypocrite to have a penny in one hand and a tenor in the other. Well, to update that, we might say it's the mark of the hypocrite to have a credit card in one hand and a trumpet in the other. Charles Spurgeon used to keep chickens and uh, he refused to sell the eggs and even his close friends uh, and family were uh, forced to pay for them. And the media got wind of this and they portrayed him in the newspapers 
as uh, greedy and grasping. There was a cartoon where he was handing over the eggs with one hand and holding out for money. And Sorry, he was keeping the eggs back until he received the money. It was only after Mrs. Spurgeon's death that it was revealed that the profits from the sale of those eggs were used to support two elderly widows in the congregation. He refused to let his left hand know what his right hand was doing, even when his own personal reputation was at stake. The true Christian, when he prays, he goes into his room, he closes the door, he closes out prying eyes, and he shuts himself in with God. Verse 6, just himself and God. That's when his prayers are real, when they're free from the applause and the motivation that applause brings. There's no contradiction between what he is in public when it comes to praying and what he is in private. He prays as frequently and as fervently when he's alone as he does when he's at the public meeting. He loves to pray, not because of the platform that prayer provides for him, but that he might give praise and bring his petitions to the God that he loves. It's in this context that our Lord gives, of course, the Lord's Prayer. And it's interesting how those first three petitions are also God-centered. His name, his kingdom, and his will. Thirdly, the Christian, when he fasts, he doesn't screw up his face to display his pain. But he washes his face, he puts oil in his head, and he goes about as normal. He fasts in secret, verse 17. When we were at Bible college, um, it was a residential college, and when you came to mealtime, the, the, the tables, they had, I think, um, eight seats at the tables, and the person at the end, all the food was put at the end, and, um, and then the person at the end had to serve the plates and then pass it down the table. And uh, I hated being at the end because the men are hopeless at that, aren't they? They can't divide portions, you know, and you're dividing it up and you're praying you've got it right so you have enough for yourself because you, you always had to serve yourself last. And so you would divide it up carefully. And, you know, women were much better at that, but it's instinctive. But, uh, but, uh, but you would be dividing it up and, and then you would come to somebody and they say, oh, not for me. I'm fasting today. Well, why were they at the table? You know, why, why were they sitting at the table if they were fasting? Why were, they, why were they not up in their room making use of that time and praying? So the Christian is distinguished in his piety from the hypocrite in that these things are carried out in secret. That's the mark of a true godly piety. Things are done in secret. He gives, he prays, he fasts, he carries out other religious duties in secret. He resists the temptation to display. He will resist ostentation. He, he does these things privately. Now, there are obvious limitations to what Jesus says here. Like, you can't preach in secret. Well, you could, and some of us do, but it's of no benefit to anybody else. You can't evangelize in secret. You can't witness in secret. You can't engage in visitation in secret. And if our Lord is forbidding public prayer, clearly the disciples didn't understand them because in the early church they met regularly to pray together. Indeed, earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. And if God's name is to be glorified, our piety at times has to be public. Don Carson 
very helpfully says that sometimes our Lord preaches in absolute categories in order to highlight our weaknesses and in order to impress the point upon our consciences. So we mustn't take this and say, well, you know, I must never pray again in public. I must never give uh, to a missionary spontaneously or uh, I must never participate in corporate fasting when the church calls for a time of fasting. Our Lord is laying down a principle and the principle is this. That the mark of an authentic godly piety is the presence of an authentic godly piety in private. You remember our threefold description of the actor. He takes what is unreal and he seeks to present it to us as real. He performs in public and he is motivated by the desire for, the, for recognition and, and applause. In contrast, the true Christian is real. There's no phoniness. There's no pretending about him. What you see is what you get. There's no contradiction between what he professes to be in public and what he's like in private. And supremely, supremely, he's motivated by the desire to, to glorify God rather than himself. That, that um, greatest uninspired, the greatest, I believe anyway, the greatest uninspired statement ever written in the world is the first answer to the first question of the shorter catechism. Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's the authentic mark of an authentic godly piety. He is as godly and private as he is in public. What about you? What are you like in private when you're away from your ministry, when you're away from the scrutiny of others, when you're away from the public eye? Are you as fervent in prayer in private as you are in public? Are you as gracious and tolerant with your family in the home as you are with the members of your church? Are you as gracious to your wife when she irritates you as you are with that irritable church member? Are you as holy in the home as you are in public? These are the tests. These are the marks of an authentic piety. And that's very important because hypocrisy is not always easy to detect. Easy to detect in others and easy to detect in ourselves. John Milton in Paradise Lost uh, describes hypocrisy as, the, uh, hypocrisy as the only evil that walks invisible. The only evil that walks invisible. And sometimes it is invisible to the very person that possesses it. There is a hypocrisy that sets out deliberately to deceive. But there is a hypocrisy in which we ourselves are deceived. Hypocrites are not always consciously insincere. When you read the biographies of the great actors, you discover that a good actor will so get himself into the, the part that he becomes lost in that part and he believes himself to be that part, the whole process of method acting. So he becomes the character that he is betraying. So when he trembles in fear, he is frightened. When he raises his voice in anger, he is angry. When he weeps, he sheds real tears. When we were 
children and we watched those old black and white films and people cried, we imagined that the director had said, cut. And then an assistant would run in with an eyedropper and put the tears in place. And then the assistant would withdraw and the director would say, action. And there would be the tears. Not at all. They shed real tears. At that moment, the actor doesn't think he is acting a part. He has become lost in the part. And that can be true of us as professing Christians. We can believe ourselves to be sincere when actually we're being hypocritical. Well, how do I know? How can I detect that hypocrisy in my own heart? Well, here's the test. Jesus gives us an acid test. And he says, what are you like in private? What are you like in private? Just yourselves and God. Just me and God when there's no opportunity to perform for others. The mark of an authentic godly piety. The description of hypocritical piety. The mark of an authentic godly piety. And then the last thing is the importance of a genuine true piety. Why is this so important that my piety, my acts of righteousness, my religious activity, my service for the Lord spring from a sincere heart and are as, in, as genuine and private as they are in public? Well, in each of the three examples, you have this repeated phrase, your father who sees in secret will reward you. Your father who sees in secret will reward you. Verse 4, verse 6, and verse 18. When you give, when you pray, when you fast, your father sees. In other words, nothing can be hidden from him. He sees all. Um, we will be rewarded not on the basis of what others see, but on the basis of what he sees. He sees every action. He knows every thought before a word is on our tongue. He knows it completely. He knows the minute details of our lives are sitting down and are rising up. Nothing can be hidden from him. We can deceive others. We can deceive ourselves, but we cannot deceive him. It was Abraham Lincoln who said, you can fool all of the people some of the time and some of the people all of the time, but you cannot fool all the people all the time. I'm not so sure he was right. Some hypocrites are pretty good at fooling all of the people all of the time. But one thing's for sure, we cannot fool God. Your father sees. Your father sees. He's not fooled. I remember watching a documentary on television um, in which Ruby Wax was interviewing um, Jim and Tammy Baker, you know, the disgraced um, televangelists in America. She didn't interview Jim because he was in prison for, um, for something or other. Anyway, some indiscretion. But they were the ones that had Bible land, you know, and you could go like a, a, a Christian Disney world and you could go and you could be swallowed by a whale and you could be... Um, um, swung back and forth in Noah's Ark and all that kind of thing. And uh, anyway, they were disgraced for financial, I think it was, uh, irregularities. And so Ruby Wax is interviewing Tammy Baker and she says, you know, she says, Jim never saw me without my makeup. 
I don't know how she did that. She must have, she must have waited till he went to bed, fell asleep, and then came in, and then got up early, I put her makeup on before she saw him again. But she says, Jim has never saw me without my makeup on. Well, God sees you and me without our makeup on. He sees right into our hearts. I'm always struck, you know, at the end of John's gospel when the Lord recommissions Peter and he says, Peter, do you love me? And he says, I do. And uh, paraphrasing. And uh, he says again, Peter, do you love me? And he says, I do. And each time, you know, feed my lambs, feed my sheep, feed my lambs. And then the third time, and I get the impression that Peter's getting a little bit irritated with the Lord. He says, Peter, do you love me? And Peter answers in this way, and it's, it's really remarkable. He says, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. I think that there he is in the presence of the omniscient Christ who can pull apart the veneer of his external profession and his expressed repentance. And he can look right into his heart. And Peter says, standing in the presence of omniscience, he says, you know. You know that I love you. And here we are this morning. And we look so respectable. So devoted. So holy. And the omniscient Christ is here. Can we honestly say to him. I'm not all that I should be. I feel you continually. And have to repent continually. But Lord, Lord, you know that I love you. Do you love him? Do you love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Remember Hagar, uh, she says, thou seest me in the wilderness. Do you remember? My granny used to have that plaque up on the, on the wall of her house. It used to frighten the life out of me. Thou seest me. He sees. He knows. Do you love him? Amen.